Good morning, everybody. And uh, this is Palm Sunday that we are celebrating today. And so you may have received a palm leaf or a branch as you have entered. And so we're going to go over uh, one of the passages that refers to this day that we celebrate. And so as we begin, let us start with a prayer. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 775. And now please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. So the triumphal entry is reminiscent of what we may even see now as a lot of pomp and pageantry of a royal ceremony. And it's because I think to a degree it was meant to do just that. We don't have kings in the U.S. because our only king is Jesus And the only thing we may have that's as close to any kind of royal pageantry in the states is the State of the Union. But it all pales in comparison to maybe other pageantries that you've looked at or are even looking for. I have heard that King Charles' coronation will be in May of this year. And so you'll see a lot of pomp and pageantry there. But why the emphasis around Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? In our text today, we'll see a very different kind of royal ceremony. Jesus is the king of kings, but he is most humble. And this is how Passion Week starts. Passion, again, as we learn in the weeks prior, is from the word pathos, and pathos means suffering. So this is the week of Jesus' suffering otherwise known as Passion Week. So this is how it starts. 
And some of you may have grown up in the church and heard this story all the time. And so people are crying out and chanting, Hosanna in the highest. We sing songs that refer to this statement, Hosanna. And then just a few days later, Jesus gets crucified. How is this possible? How can you shout Hosanna in one day and all of a sudden shout crucify him a few days later? And some scholars have put together this thought. Well, the people coming in, which we'll go over, they're different people than the people that are in Jerusalem. So there are two different groups of people, one that has followed Jesus from Galilee and another one that is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Well, that might be the case. That might be true. But let me add to you another aspect. If that's the case, then where were these people who were shouting Hosanna? when other people were shouting, crucify him. When we meet new people, some of you are single here, some of you are dating, perhaps, and some of you, when you're married, you can recollect in the past, maybe this was how you were. There's something that we look for in the States or in our culture, and it's it's called the spark, right? So do I have a spark with this person? And people who are married kind of chuckle, especially if you were married for a long time, because that spark has died for many, many years. No. Um, Oh, she's not here. It's fine. Uh, But when people meet new people and they start dating, they look for something called the spark. Ask anybody that's been married more than maybe a few years, and they'll tell you, "That's that's just crazy talk now. Why is that the case? And so I'm just going to go into a little bit of an explanation. When you meet a new person, it generates a lot of excitement, especially if it's someone that you're interested in, right? Is this person handsome, good-looking, beautiful, makes a lot of money, is high status, whatever it is? And you're very nervous. There's a lot of excitement. But with the excitement comes stress. So now you have two sets of emotions that are on like level 10 or 11, and with it a release of a ton of uh, chemicals and like... um, you know, hormones in your body, right? And so that's, that's, you have an elevation of excitement and stress. So when you meet someone new, you get all this, uh, this kind of excitement and stress. And this is what we, we don't know, so we kind of put it into one category. Oh, with this person, I really feel something. And the reason why married people laugh at that or sometimes scoff at that is because that is a very, very childish way of thinking about relationships relationships, a spark may have initiated your relationship with your spouse, but what happens after a while is that stress level, hopefully, that stress level of meeting a new person starts to come down. And when it starts to come down, there's a sense of peace and calm, and there's a sense of serenity, there's a sense of comfort. And some people can't take that. And that's why when you know know these chronic daters, they can't they can't stop dating. I'm, most of you are older now, so now it's a blast from the past when I ask you to think of a friend who was a chronic dater because they're looking for this spark, but they don't know why. Why am I looking? How come I don't have this spark or this kind of thing? So now that I've explained that really briefly, very, very scientifically, obviously, but very briefly I've explained this, what about Jesus? There is an excitement There is an excitement about Jesus. He's doing things that people had no idea. You are left in a place of just, I don't understand. 
right before this passage, he's like, I'm going to die. It's like, there's high levels of stress and excitement. And so what happens when the spark goes away? That's the test. And so I have three points that we'll go over this morning briefly. And it is demonstration, character, and procession. Demonstration, character, and procession, DCP, okay? So demonstration from verse 1, when they, now, when they, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then sent, Jesus sent two disciples. Like I said before, it has been incredible with Jesus up until this point. He started with Galilee. People were like, what is going on? And the Decapolis and all this area, if you remember our study in Matthew, he goes to Perea, and then he goes to Jericho. And now from Jericho, he's making his way to Jerusalem. And the funny thing about this part is all these people that Jesus is gathering up, these people that are so excited for Jesus, what kind of people are they? Well, let's look at just one. They're all, you can look at the, the other 20 chapters of Matthew if you want to know. But look at what happened in Jericho. A story is told to us. He had, a, he had an encounter with this tax collector. He was very short. He climbed up a tree to see what Jesus was like. This is a story we learned in Sunday school because his name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a Jewish trader who had bought a tax franchise from Rome but he did it for himself, meaning he was extorting money now for his, from his people for, to benefit himself. That's the worst kind of person. A person who would use your friends, your family, the people that are supposed to be your own kin to benefit yourself. That's who Zacchaeus was. And he was the most hated man for certain. In Jericho, at least. But he wants to see Jesus. So what does he do? He climbs a tree. Jesus goes up to him and goes, Zacchaeus, I'm eating at your house today. And Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus leads him to salvation. He redeems Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gives everything away. And then he joins this entourage that's now following Jesus. That's just one picture. Now, if you look at the Greek word of the crowds, it's a lot of people. There are so many of these stories that now are following Jesus. That's the kind of excitement I'm talking about. And not only that, once he gets to in front of Jerusalem, he says, he says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, there's a funny thing about this part right here. If you are going to do your own entrance, your own procession, or it's about your own wedding or some kingly, knightly ceremony, whatever it is, you don't plan it yourself. Other people do it for you. But Jesus here gives the exact details of how he wants things to be done. Jesus, by the way, didn't steal the donkey. I don't know, some people might be like, the Lord needs us. Like, did he just steal them? He didn't steal the donkey. I believe that the person that was owning the donkey said, whoa, this is something that I understand. And so for whatever reason, 
this person understood, the master of the house understood it, and gave those donkeys to the disciples like they asked. But what the point is, is this is Jesus leading his own coronation. This is Jesus showing us in ceremony that he commands his own destiny. No one is doing it for him. No one is his party planner. No one is guiding his footsteps. This is Jesus doing it himself because it is ultimately Jesus who will command his own destiny all the way to the giving up his life. He wasn't helpless. He wasn't some kind of poor destitute person who didn't know what was going on and was just helpless to the, the circumstance or to the elements of what was going on. But Jesus commanded every single part of this Passion Week and his entire life. Now, what's also interesting about the demonstration Jesus is showing us is he's starting it from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is what we're seeing. And this is an interesting place that's mentioned. Why? Because it's a paved road. If it's a paved road back in the day, that means the Romans paved it. Romans had a really like great way of just paving roads. So, you know, that's why there's this even a saying, all roads lead to Rome. And so there was an actual paved road into Jerusalem, and Jesus is taking this road. Now there is even more excitement, even more stress, even more elevation of all these hormones. Why? Because people are thinking, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? And so let's go to the next part. The next part is character. Now, after Jesus did this and he commanded his disciples, there is a quote from the Bible. And the quote from the Bible is actually from two places, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, and Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it's these two verses that are kind of put together, but the first line is from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, and the second part, or the majority part, is from Zechariah 9, verse 9. So I'm going to read to you Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what is this showing? First, we have this demonstration that Jesus is going to do. Jesus is putting these things together. He's going to start rolling. The, the, the ball is going to start to roll now. And Jesus is doing this. And then all of a sudden, there is this revelation of who Jesus is. So who is it that's coming into the city of Jerusalem? Who is it? And it's in Zechariah 9.9. It's a prophecy that is pointing. And by the way, the Jewish people that would have heard this verse would have known that this is a messianic prophecy. And so there are four, actually four characteristics to this uh, prophecy that we see that the Messiah would have. Number one, he's a king. But there's an interesting part about this king. This king, now if there is a king and there's a president or whatever, there's, there's royalty, what usually happens? We go to them. We go to them. But there's something different about this king. This king is coming to us. This king is coming to Jerusalem. So the element of this king already is different from any other worldly king. We go to kings. We go ask for audience from a king. But now we see Jesus is coming to us. And that's the difference between other kings 
and Jesus. Now, there are two characteristics that are actually absent from Matthew's quote of this um, prophecy, and that's fascinating to me. There's two. One is righteous, and he has salvation. Those two are not there, and you have to wonder why. Perhaps because it is going to be hidden for now. But there is one characteristic in this prophecy that is now highlighted because of it. There is this king that is coming to us, and it's the fourth one. What kind of king is he? He is a humble king. He is a meek king. And so what do kings normally come in? You come down now with motorcades. Back then it would have been on horses and chariots. You come down in power. You would have a show of power, a show of strength. And yet here we see Jesus riding on a colt of a donkey. It shows how humble he is because he is the king that will bring peace. I want to say this because perhaps you have learned about this growing up. Jesus didn't come in a war horse. He came in a donkey because he wanted to show that he is not an earthly king that brings war, but an, a king, a heavenly king that brings peace. Now you think about that. Think about that. Jesus brings peace. What does that mean? Because what did Jesus do right after? What did Jesus do right after he came in on a donkey? He cleared the temple. He cursed the fig tree. Now you're thinking, oh man, what's that about? I thought it was about peace. And I think we have a misguided and incorrect understanding of what peace is. And this leads us to our final and last point, procession. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, the two disciples returned from their errand. They put their outer garments, that means the cloaks, on these animals, and they were part of this procession. And Jesus sat on the colt, right? The mother donkey was probably with the colt to show, this shows that how young this donkey was. Because the young colt, the mother will never leave. You know, we can even relate to that, right? You're not going to leave your kid behind. In the same way, a mother donkey will never leave its colt when it's young. So you can see both of them coming to show the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is a young colt that no one has ever ridden before to fulfill what God has said, to show that Jesus is a king of humility, of meekness. Now, what happens when you put down clothes or cloaks on the floor? You're basically making a red carpet for Jesus. You can imagine all the cloaks being spread down on the road, and you can imagine people ripping off branches or cutting them down so that they can wave them. At that time, there was something called the Feast of the Tabernacles. So there were already a ton of people in Jerusalem. Some people can surmise there were over a million people in Jerusalem. So all of this is coming along. Now you have a ton of people coming from one side, from Galilee now, to Perea, to Jericho, now going into Jerusalem. And you already have a lot of people waiting for the, uh, for the Passover, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles already. And what they would do, because the city would not be able to hold all of them, people would make tents and makeshift like little tents outside, and they would break these branches. But instead of breaking these branches for the tents, what you would see now is people would break these branches down 
to wave to signify the Lord coming into the city. In verse 9, the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save me. It's a cry of desperation. And why would they cry something like that? And I believe a lot of them understood that their life is a life of suffering. It's difficult. It's not easy. The Romans were ruthless. They took away a lot of their ability to be able to worship freely, to live as um, you know, obedient and observant Jewish people, right? And so they weren't able to do the things, and people would come in, and they would understand, like, this is not right. Um, there's, you know, there's cases, and you can see in the historical writings where Roman soldiers or you know, people would come, like um, these battalions would come in, and they would just ravage a village. They would take any woman as their own. They would take all the, all the food and supplies of a town and just wipe them out and just move on to the next village. They were, people were rightly very upset. So when Jesus is coming into the city, all of these thoughts must have been in their head. All of these things and these hearts and feelings, when people say, save me, it means save me from all these terrible things that they are facing. It was so bad that they would continue to cry out, Hosanna in the highest. How bad is it? shows us the contrast to how much we need a Savior. How powerful must the Savior be? You recognize that when you see how bad it is. How bad was it for the people in that time? How much of a Savior did they need then? And so they believed it in the sense where this person has to save us. Now all this picture is coming into place, right? The Roman road, the, the, the Roman <clears throat> oppression, the subjugation, the freedoms that they didn't have when they believed that it was their right to worship God as God had commanded them. All these things are coming into place. Jesus is going down. And Jesus goes into the city. And it says, even in verse 10, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd that entered said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now you could imagine like, what is this, you know, dinky town doing in this person's name? It's like saying, you know, you're from this backwater town and now you're going to be the king. It didn't make any sense to people. And so now you see this end here in verse 11 as we read it, but I just want to go quickly to the two places that I mentioned. As Jesus would come in, now everybody's expecting him. He's going to be Hosanna. He's going to save us. He's the Messiah. We believe it. These are the things that we need salvation from. And they're real things. I am not downplaying any of the destitution that they faced, the hardships, the persecution that they faced, the saving that they needed. It was big. It was necessary. It was terrible. Any kind of subjection, oppression that is unjust is terrible. What did Jesus do first? Because on his way to the temple, there's Pilate's palace. Did Jesus stop by there? Did he stop by and say, you evil ruler, how dare you do this? Now I'm going to bring you justice. What did he do? He goes, 
He passes by Pilate's palace, and he goes to the temple. In the temple, he overturns the money changers. He overturns the tables, the people selling stuff, and he cleanses the temple. This is what it's called. This is why we call it the cleansing of the temple. And people are confused. I thought you came to save us, Jesus. I thought you came to save me from the oppression I was facing. The world is an evil place. We all understand that. Why are you doing this? And the money changers? Come on, you can't. Don't you understand, Jesus? The reason why we have money changers is because we want to obey God. In our fidelity to God, we have the money changers because we don't want any kind of pagan imagery on these coins given to the temple. That's blasphemous. So what these money changers would do is if you brought in a Roman coin, they would change it for a Hebrew coin. And they would change this money so the money that you gave wouldn't have these graven images on it of these Greek gods and such. So aren't we doing a good thing? And Jesus goes, my house is a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of robbers. And what does he do next? Really quickly, what does he do next? He goes out and there's a fig tree. And it's not in season, meaning it's not time for people to pick, pick, uh, pick figs. He goes to the fig tree looking for figs. There's no figs. So he curses the tree and the tree withers and dies immediately, just dies. Those are the two things. And then he talks about his authority in the rest of the chapter. What is going on? I thought, Jesus, you came to save us from all these things that are going outside. And what does he first do? And how is this a king of peace? How is this a king of peace when you do these things right after. Okay, I'm going to close up. And, no, I, imagine I just closed up then. This is where we are. This is the place that people need to stay in. How is this the case? And so what we start to realize is this. Jesus is the king of peace. But peace with what? Peace with the world? So you're good with those that are around you? So that you're good with those people that you like and they like you back and you guys are all hunky-dory and you live this kind of flowery, rainbowy life? Or is it peace with God? Jesus comes as a king of peace because he brings us peace with God. We are the ones raging against God, defiling his holy temple, making a place of prayer, which is our temple, which is us, into a den of robbers. We do all these things with the temple of God, which are blasphemous. It's a desecration of the holy temple of God. And when Jesus comes to bring peace, what does he need to do? He needs to cleanse the temple. And that's what he does. And number two, the thing that he shows us is the fig tree. Why out of season? Well, the thing about the fig tree was even out of season, some fig trees bear leaves and even out of the regular season, they can bear figs when it's necessary. And so a lot of fig trees, they would bear all these figs even out of season or quote-unquote season because, you know, it was the time for the fig tree to bear figs. And so people understood this at the time. So when Jesus would approach the fig tree, there were all these leaves. What does that mean? It has this show, this outside costume of 
Hey, I have figs. That's what it is. I have figs. That's what all the leaves signify. But by the time Jesus gets to the fig tree, no figs, no fruit. And what are you judged on? Judge not on the leaves. It's not your outer garment. Judged on the fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree. The fig tree withers and dies. There are two things that Jesus does. Number one, he saves his elect. Number two, he's judge of the rubber bed. And that's what we have to understand about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ isn't some meek fellow in the sense where he's like, oh, please believe in me. The humble king that we, we are being referred to here, the humble king is he could have just simply come as judge and brought the wrath of God. But instead, he comes and he cleanses the temple, which means what? And we'll see as the weeks go on, as the week goes on, it's Jesus Christ. For those that he means to save, those that can hear the gospel, who have ears to hear, he takes on your terrible, terrible sins and he dies with them so that you don't have to be cursed and be withered and be thrown into the fire. Those are the two choices. And who brings it? Jesus Christ does. We live in a world where now we are kind of confused. Well, I am a Christian, but it doesn't really affect everything that I do. I go to church on Sundays. That's kind of an amazing statement to even fathom in Christendom, meaning our whole 2,000 years of Christ-believing church people to even think that. We're in a very special time because this is just a special time and place where you can even dare to imagine such a thing that time will run out for us even here where you can think well it doesn't affect my day to day i'll let you know politics be politics religion be religion family be family and you know i'll have a really clean tidy life in 2018 september there was a sermon that a pastor Wang Yi gave in China. Um, 2018, September, I think it was September 9th, but he gave this sermon. I have an excerpt of it that I want to read for you. And a few months later, he was in prison. As far as I know, he's still in prison today. What they did was they took him, they took his wife, they took all his elders, they took the leaders of the church, they tracked them with their phones. When they would see, they would have every single one of their phones, satellite locations. When they would see a bunch of them come together, they would come and raid that place so that they can put them all in jail. This is what his sermon said. I'm just going to give you an excerpt from it. All the weaknesses we experience in Christian life. Why are you still caught up in lies? Why are you lingering in all that sordid malice? It's because you're afraid of persecution. It's because you do not believe persecution is a blessing from God. When we are not being persecuted, we spread the gospel. And when persecution comes, we continue spreading the gospel. If we are talking about a president, we declare he is a sinner. If we are talking about a general secretary, we still declare that he is a sinner. We believe that we have the responsibility to tell Xi Jinping that he is a sinner. 
The government he is leading has sinned greatly against God, for it is persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he does not repent, he will perish. We declare that there is still a way of escape for an evil man like him. There is only one way out, and that is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful sermon. And he gave it, and he was imprisoned. And this is the Christians that are in this world today. How dare we think that we have an option of, I can maybe do this, I can maybe do that, I can obey tomorrow, I can repent 10 years later after I do this. How dare we think that that's something that we are given? Because here's what we can learn from this triumphal entry. It's not up to us when we dictate when we believe in Jesus Christ. It's up to Jesus when he comes into the city. That's when we come to terms with the king of kings. When he comes into the city, that's when we see the cleansing or the cursing. When he comes into the city, that's when we will be faced with the king of kings and all of our sins will come to light. And that's why when you hear this message, it should be a message reminding you or telling you if it's for the first time to repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ. There's only one way out, and that way is Jesus. Are you sinning? Are you steep in your sin? Are you convinced that this is a sin that you get out of later? Then don't be fooled. That is a lie of the enemy. Repent now and give up anything you can to follow Christ, even if it means persecution, even if it means you get kicked out of your house, even if it means you get ridiculed and kicked out of your family. There was this one um, testimony that stayed with me as a video testimony of someone in South Africa about how he believed in Jesus Christ. He went to this Unitarian, this is how amazing the story is. And some of these testimonies that we hear every time we have a baptism, they're just so amazing. And I believe it's because God is amazing. And by the way, I thought it was really cute that you moved his mic too. I was like, oh, Father, something. I know everybody thought that too, though. But, you know, it's just an amazing testimony of God's love for you and how he's held you. He goes to this Unitarian church, and he's listening to all these sermons and things like that. doesn't make any sense. So he comes upon a book about uh, God's sovereignty. It was like an R.C. Sproul or something. He reads it from front to end. He's like, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. He believes in what the Bible says. And so he goes to his mom. He's like, Mom, I'm a Christian. And she goes, get out of the house. You're no longer part of this family. No explanation, just out. He was cut off from every single thing that he knew of. Every single community, friend group, family event, done, out. And he was sad. He was distraught. He was devastated. But what could he do? How can he give up Christ? Because Christ gave him life. And this is what John Calvin wrote too. John Calvin, he had a really hard life. And this is, his, this is a quote from John Calvin. I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? Everything in Christ. That's our testimony. What is holding you back from giving it all up for Christ? Because when Jesus comes, there is no more waiting. When the word of God is presented to you, there's no like delay. 
Either your heart will be softened by the word of God or it will be hardened by the word of God. Either you will be cleansed or you will be cursed. Either you will see Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or you will want to put him to death because you hate everything he stands for. But Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave. No grave, no death could hold him. And by the power of God, he was raised up to life. And so those that place their faith in him, their faith is not for naught. It doesn't fall to the ground, but it is God that holds them. And they are also raised with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you also declaring that we are a sinner, that without the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way, there is no escape for an evil person like us. We pray now for the forgiveness of our sins and that you will hold our faith in you. We thank you, Lord, for the hope of the gospel message that through Christ we have this way, the one way that is true, the one way that is right, the one way that saves. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God. Where has your heart wavered? Where are you sinning? Lift it up to God because God is the one that forgives and also God is the one that sends his Holy Spirit to strengthen you where you are weak. In your faith, Lift up your prayers and your hearts to God. Let's pray.